Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to the Satsung Podcast in honor of the release of uh, Forever and Ever Amen. Uh, my mom sang on the song, we had her sing some harmonies, uh, so I had her on as a podcast guest and we talk a lot about what it was like uh, watching me kind of evolve as an artist from a young boy. Uh, We talk a lot about her upbringing, you know, growing up on a ranch in rural Montana and the music that surrounded that time. And um, yeah, we talk about a bunch of shit. Um, But yeah, how cool that I'm having my mom on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy chatting with her. Um, Yeah, without further ado, my mother. My mother, welcome to the Satsung Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked. Uh, usually I'm talking to strangers, so I'm excited <laughs> that I'm not talking to a stranger. Um, so first off, um, we announced uh, that we signed with Side One Dummy today. I saw that. Yeah, it's weird because it isn't news to me. You know, I've known for you know, like five months or six months that this was happening. Uh, so it's been weird because my phone's been blowing up all day. I'm sure. And it's not news to me. But what's also cool is they didn't even know about the Randy Travis cover. And then when we told them the idea, they were like, yeah, we'll put that shit out. Awesome. So yeah, you have a, you're singing on a song that's being put out by uh, the biggest punk rock label in the world. Pretty cool stuff. I know. How crazy that it's a punk rock label, too. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Matt, uh, my my manager, was saying today, he goes, a band that's known as a conscious music, you're, you're considered a conscious music artist that is putting out a Americana record on a punk rock label. Pretty cool. Fitting. Yeah, like, yeah, totally fitting. If it wasn't for punk rock, you might not be here right now. I know it. So what's really funny, and we'll get uh, deeper into this, but you know, I didn't realize um, how punk rock some of the old country dudes were. Like, you know, like uh, really diving into Willie Nelson's story and how people mm-hmm. were like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" And he just wouldn't change a thing about himself. Yeah. Um, Waylon Jennings too, you know, he went from being this like, you know, short haired, you know, the fucking dolled up Western Nashville special suits to like singing about guns and drugs and, you know, and just like how, I don't know how punk rock in nature that was to just be like, well, if they don't like it, fuck them. Johnny Cash was no different. Very, very true. Yeah, he's probably the, the OG. And that you saw, you know, it was like a scene, right? Like all the bad boys of country all hung out together. They did, indeed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, it's just like anything else, change is slow. But at the time, we can't, we can't even imagine what kind of, you know, pain they were going through trying to get, you know, listened to, heard, and spouses involved as well. Jesse Coulter, Waylon's wife, was in that movement as well. And, uh, you know, 
and now they're they're considered heroes you know just like a lot of anytime you see an artist start to change i remember when uh you know 90s country came back and the traditional sound started to take that turn and how it was just fought 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 because they had gotten kind of used to that pop sound Mm-hmm. And then when the, you know, Randy Travis was at the forefront of that and, you know, he drug a lot of guys with him and to see it come full circle. And, and now we're seeing the same exact thing repeating itself again, because it's kind of drifted back towards the pop. And then you've got some traditional artists out there now that are slowly, slowly dragging it back. It's going to take time, but it's, you know, it always comes full circle in country music and Americana, all that. It always makes a turn and around and around. Yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, one thing that I've been kind of joking about recently is that it's funny to me that bands like Turnpike Troubadours and Tyler Childers and Sturgill Simpson and all these guys are called alternative country. I'm like, it just sounds like fucking country to me. And all this other shit sounds like alternative country to me. And and you're exactly right. I think it was that way, though, for 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 Willie Whalen and those guys, when they were first starting out, they didn't get radio airtime, just like, you know, the Thailand Childers of the world don't get airtime. It's a shame, but at some point, you know, you have to, just like you always said, you have to decide, are you doing this for radio? Or are you doing this for yourself and for people? Well, you made it pretty clear that you were doing it for people. So yeah, that's, that's what they did too. And that's Tyler now, you know, he's not doing this for any kind of recognition. Yeah, he just put out a fucking Appalachian instrumental fiddle album. Awesome. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, it's weird. You know, I have this uh, kind of innate, I wouldn't say fear, um, but I've been, um, you know, I've been, I'm pretty nervous about how the album's going to be received because of, um, yeah, but you worry about that every single album. Let's yeah, well, I worried about it with Culture and nobody listened to it. And I thought that was the coolest record I had ever made. It but. is the coolest record you've ever put out. It, it's, people get used to a thing though. And, and you know, and you know, I'm not knocking anybody else, but sometimes you get artists who everything they do sounds the exact same. And that's not growing. And you've said it yourself, that's not growth. If you're not stretching and trying to you know, trying to be, you know, if you're trying to put yourself in a box, you're not going to, you're not going to grow as a musician or as an artist. And I, and you know, myself, I admire what you do very much because you don't, you're not constrained. You're not trying to be in a cage. You're not trying to make, uh, a, you know, hopefully you won't do it now, make a label happy. You're just trying to make your fans happy, yourself happy. You know, you, maybe nobody listened to culture like you thought they should, but again, it comes back around, you know. if Yeah, I hope so. You know, I kind of made that album for the kids of just, I just want to, um, wanted to, to have a, a timestamp that when people were asking them, you know, what, uh, what was it like when Trump was elected and, and all this shit was all crazy. Well, you've always been about five steps ahead always your whole life when it came to being tapped into the conscience of the world or whatever. So I I don't think you should be too worried about that. You should be proud of that, that you're that in tune to what's going on in the world, because now that music is very, very timely. 
um, at the time that you put that out, we were just kind of at the beginning of it. People really didn't know what kind yeah, of they thing didn't. <laughs> was going to be done to the country. And now they see it. Yeah. Now all of a sudden it's genius, but you were already there. You already had seen it and knew what was coming. Yeah. And well, same, same with the demo record too, though. There were songs on the demo record before it was this big that were tuned into that as well. So it's nice that you re-released some of those you know, with a different take with the full band, because there's a lot, there's a lot to be said in those lyrics too. So, yeah, well, I went through, I'm kind of going through this thing now where, you know, I don't really care to, um, you know, Michael said something, Michael Franti said something to me one time where he said, you know, man, I don't want a room full of people that agree with me. I want this, I want to win over the swing vote. So yeah. my, you know, my big focus in writing music now is, you know, I feel like if we can find common ground with people, that's when we're going to have good conversation and, and change mm -hmm. each other's hearts. So I'm just really focused on making music that everyone can like, regardless of what the hell you believe. And, you know, I mean, my opinion is out there. I don't, you know, I don't hold much back when I'm talking. So my opinion's out there. So uh, I just want to make the music a bit more uh, accessible that you can listen to it if you just signed a record deal or if you broke up with your girlfriend or like whatever the hell you're going through that you still want to listen to my record. Um, I, I think if all good music, that's exactly what it should be used for. I know there's, you know, when you're going through something, though, a song, if you're tuned into music, a song will automatically pop into your head. And the really good writers out there are tapped into that. I mean, I... I'll hear something new from somebody that I like and, and you know, how you just kind of nod because you know, then that they're going, whatever that you're going through, they were going through it too. And obviously they knew other people were going through it when they put it to paper, you know? So. Yeah. Stapleton, I feel like is what makes him so special to me uh, as a songwriter is, you know, the dude's been married to the same woman for many, many years, mm -hmm. but he has this ability to go play a character and tell a story. You know, like his new record, he has that song, uh, You Should Probably Leave. I think that's the best song on that record. And it's about this dude that, you know, whether it's his ex-girlfriend or whatever the story is, that he has history with this girl and he's pretty much being like, you know, you should take off before things get out of hand here because we both know where this is going to go. Or you know, uh, what are you listening to? He had been married for years when he wrote that song, but he wrote like the coolest breakup song ever, you know, I, I you know, and I'm starting to, uh, to realize, you know, I've always taken a very hip hop approach to how I write. And I've just always written very autobiographically. Um, and I want to start tooling around with the idea of, of, of going, okay, well, if I, you know, this is something Franti does really well, if he, he can kind of leave his shell and go, okay, if I want to feel this, what's a song that I could write that would make me want to listen to, you know, what's a song I could write that I'd want to listen to if I was feeling this? Uh, and I think that's really special. That's something that I've never really tapped into, but. Yet. Yet. And I'm young, so I got that's time. Right. You're a lot younger than Michael. Michael's had a couple more turns around the block than you. He has, he has. Well, just think about your writing though, when you were still in high school and you know, you, you look at those songs like they're, they're nothing, but they're part of your story. Totally. 
I have everything you've ever recorded. And I like to go back every now and again and, and listen to that. Um, and I always, my favorite song you've ever covered is to love somebody when you. Yeah. yeah, me too. I mean, that version is of that song is, you know, it's been done a million times, but it's a special version. So. Yeah, Carl and I have a, it's funny, you know, and I feel like we've always known like, oh, we were supposed to do this, but it's funny when I had Carl on the podcast, uh, just like, I guess I just never thought about it. He was like, well, dude, if you think about the course of our relationship, you know, about a week into knowing each other, we started recording music together. And then anytime we hung out, I just pretty much had shit set up because I knew you were going to run and record something. And he's like, and we didn't see each other for seven years. And what did I do when we, what, did, when I came out and visited Montana, did we, what did we do? Did we go see any sites? Like, no, we stayed in my shitty base, basement apartment, recovered, you know, and recorded a bunch of songs. So it's like, mm-hmm. Carl and I just have this connection, this like thing that, you know, he knows, he knows how to capture me in my, in my space because when i record by myself it's not the same you know but when it's with him he has this ability uh he just knows how to pull how to pull out of me um and when we play your head yeah he really does it's so funny i joke about that all the time that carl is that i produce i'm the producer but carl is the uh the active translator between me and the technology um, and that he knows what I'm, you know, I can literally go, Hey man, what if it was like, but then also it was like, and he's like, like this, like, yes, exactly like that, Carl. Um, all right. So let's get into, so first off, we, you sang on this, uh, Randy Travis single that we're covering. And it's funny because I grew up listening to country music. It was always playing. Mm-hmm. You were always singing harmonies in the car. Mm-hmm. I, it's like all, every memory I have uh, of riding in the car with you is, and I and I get shit to this day at the volume that I listen to music, mm-hmm. because in my mind, riding in the car isn't conversation time. It's where this is listen to music time. Mm-hmm. And um, well, you it, know, a lot of that for me to have to practice that—that that was my only way to rehearse. Mm-hmm. You know, as a hired gun which is what we used to call it. Maybe you still, everything's yep. changed in the business. No, nope, that's still a thing. Again. You would get, and this is just the way it was in those days, you know, you'd get a call, uh, such and such, because, you know, big artists traveled with their own backup singers, but they had to be at a mega level. Mm-hmm. Most of them did not travel with their own backup singers. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, every major city had a, a stable. Mm-hmm of backup singers and you would get a call uh, for the such and such artists. Are you interested? Um, you know, it's this many songs and then you'd say yay or nay. And if you said yay, they'd send a messenger with a cassette tape um, or you'd have to go to somewhere and pick it up wherever the booking agent was and you'd pick it up and you'd take it home and you'd listen to it a million times till you knew all the parts. And then you'd get usually one dress rehearsal before a show when they did sound check and you were on and that was the way it was. So to learn, to make sure that I was ready for whatever was coming. I had, we, you know, that was my rehearsal time was singing in the car. Dude, that is a fucking nightmare to me to just be like, yeah, dude, I've never met these people, but that's the band tonight. Well, that's how it was done. And, and it may still be a lot like that. Only I'm sure it's, it's 
they probably email you the no at the higher level man it's uh you know usually the label has a stable and they say like Mm -hmm. okay here's these these three girls in nashville or these guys in nashville like for childers you know if you go back and watch some of those old videos you know he was writing these really great songs but he had a really shitty band and um you know they're Mm -hmm. just buddies and his buddy could kind of play the slide you know could kind of play pedal steel and i think that's how a lot of them start out you know you get so i started out very mediocre musician with me yeah and you just and it just goes from there but you know you know that's just how it was and sometimes it was i was lucky enough to be where it was local because billings is where a lot of it was coming but i had to go to bozeman sometimes i would drive as far as cheyenne wyoming sometimes to do shows and that's where i met randy so let's talk about uh where you grew up grew up north of billings montana in a little town called roundup and um yeah what talk a little bit about uh what it was like where you where you lived and and talk a bit about grandpa and what what he was like I was the oldest of four daughters. My parents were married 10 and a half years before they even had any kids. They were still living in Kansas when I was born. My dad got an opportunity to go to Montana and get back into ranching. When I was born, right before I was born, he was still rodeoing. He gave up rodeo because of me and he was working in a feedlot in Ashland, Kansas. And then when he found out I was going to be born. He gave up rodeo and had a chance to go back and, and run a ranch. And he went to work uh, at that time, what was called the Johnson Eckern Ranch, which later became the Snowy Mountain Ranch. But at that time it was Johnson Eckern. He worked there for a few years. And then the Pronghorn Ranch, where we spent the bulk of our life and childhood and where he ended up retiring from. Um, we moved there when right after Twyla was born, so 1966. And that's where we spent the bulk of our growing up years. Eventually the pronghorn, the Snowy Mountain Ranch merged and he had all of that to look after, which was about 30,000 acres, huge place. Um, But yeah, we grew up, you know, very poor and hard work. And, you know, we were, didn't have boy, my dad didn't have boys. So we were the boys, we worked, we worked too. uh, you know, it's tough. We had household responsibilities. My mom had, your grandmother had severe mental illness her whole life. And so there was a lot of um, trauma and abuse and neglect going on there. But, you know, we all came out the other side. Sometimes it's it's that grow, that hard work that uh, I think makes you who you are. And we're all very strong women except for one of us the three out of the four of us are very strong we don't take crap from anybody um and it's what you see is what you get and none of us are real concerned about (laughs) what anyone thinks we do our thing we you know and as we get that from our dad because he was the same way you know he was a real scrappy not very tall strong outspoken guy and that's how we learned you know he he swore a lot as you know you swear words to describe other swear words and we all talk like that too and that's just (laughs) who we are well it's funny it's funny because 
you know, you don't really start to think about the attributes you attain from your folks, uh, I think, until you start becoming an adult, you know, and, um, you know, the thing that I always get, you know, um, I, I hope among other artists that I'm also respected as an artist, but the, you know, the, the big, the bulk of my reputation is that everyone, you know, says about me, well, yeah, dude, that guy will fucking outwork anybody. Um, you know, and you're not going to tell me no or tell me that I can't do anything. You know, and, uh, you know, I remember getting in an argument with my old manager, you know, where he was like, fuck, man, do you ever think about anything other than work? And I remember being like, uh, I mean, probably when I'm sleeping, I don't, but, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm working on balance now, but it, it really kind of hit me, you know, where that came from. Um, and, you know, dad had, had, had a shitload of flaws, but the thing when I look at it growing up was you were always working and, and always excelling in work, you know, and, and getting promoted. And then even when you were laid off, it was just like, boom, right on to the next thing. No fucking gaps. Like, you know, there was not keeping you down. You, you were fucking diagnosed with cancer, like right around the same time that you got mm -hmm. let go. And I just don't ever remember, uh, okay, well, I better tap the brakes and really let all this settle in. It was just like, no, fucking keep her rolling. And I, and I think of dad even, you know, where he was working at the radio station, but he also fucking sold jewelry and you know flipped cars and you know umpired umpired fucking softball games you know and mm -hmm. i just am like you guys are just such hard workers uh well when you have kids and you already know this when you have kids there's a lot of pressure to you know somebody's got to feed them somebody's got to clothe them somebody's got to pay the yep. bills the lights got to stay on and you know you got to do all those things so you have to make sure that, that they're provided for and and, and that was my dad's whole gig, you know, he, everything he did was about keeping us provided for, you know, he, he wasn't, he was working because he loved what he did, but he was working because we had to eat, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what it's about. And you make sacrifices because of it too, you know, I, I get questioned a lot. Well, why'd you, why'd you walk away from that? Why'd you, why? because I got kids to feed. It wasn't paying the bills, mm -hmm. you know, and it was got to be hard, you know, when you guys were little, you, you know, and that was how I justified it is that you wouldn't remember, you know, if I was gone for a weekend and Cheyenne had to go down or wherever I had to go sing or whatever, you know, I, my justification was you guys wouldn't remember. But then as you got closer to being in school, you would remember. And it yeah. wasn't exactly stable in those days either. So something had to give. Well, when we, when we had, when we found out that Malachi was pregnant, that was, or that Summer was pregnant with Malachi, you know, that was right when I started getting those offers to go on tour with Franti and Trevor and mm -hmm. all that shit. And, you know, I remember we were in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, I sent Franti a text. I was in my green room. He was in his. And I was just like, hey, man, I'm fucked up right now. You know, can I come talk to you? And I went and talked to him and I was just like, dude, I'm, you know, I'm freaking out about this baby coming. Like, I feel like we're doing all these shows with you and playing all these sold out theaters, but I know I'm going to have to come back and do my own shows. And he was like, look, dude, for the first two years of that baby's life, he's not going to give a shit that you exist. You know, he's like, while he's breastfeeding, it's mom. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, what I would do now is if I were you do everything you can to keep your marriage intact, but 
you know, you got to grind right now and you got to set yourself up. So when that kid is wanting your attention, you're going to have the freedom. And, so, uh, and there's a large, large difference though, too. You have multi-talents. I had a talent Yeah. as a decent songwriter and a decent backup singer. It wasn't the same. Yeah. It wasn't the same. So I agree with Michael. You had to set yourself up because this is how you make your living. Yeah. This was a side gig for me. Always yeah. a side gig. Always. Yeah. And I always just knew, you know, I, the other thing that I, th I think about when I was a kid of, of watching you and dad was, you know, the thing that scared the shit out of me the most when I would think about being adult was I didn't want to wear a suit or be told how I had to dress, you know, and I remember the take your kid to work days. <laughs> I remember going to your office and being like, fuck this. And then I, and, and always like going to barbecues and like hearing all you guys, you know, make fun of your bosses and shit. And mm -hmm. like, and then same thing, you know, I went to the radio station with dad and I was so excited, like, oh my God, he works at a radio station. This is going to be so cool. And it was just a bunch of cubicles and he called, he, he sold advertising, you know, so he's just mm -hmm. on his phone all day trying to sell shit to people over the phone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just knew real early by about eighth grade or by about eight years old that I just, that I had no interest in having an orthodox life um, or you know, doing anything that really resembled normalcy. And you, and you remember all the way up through, uh, through middle school, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Yep. You know, I just always was like Navy SEAL, rock star, definitely just have to do something that's super fucking nuts that when I meet people, they're like, what do you do? And I tell them, they're like, whoa, that's fucking nuts. You know, <laughs> I just always knew I wanted to have a nutty life. Um, when, when did you know, uh, when did you see in me like, um, oh shit, you know, when did you think that like, oh man, this kid's probably going to be a musician? Well, the first time that I really started to watch it was, you know, when, when we, once in a while, people would come to, to our house and you're too little to remember to rehearse, but you, they let you climb over their guitar cases and let you hold guitars and drag guitars around and nobody cared. They thought it was cute, but what was really cute is how you watched at two and three, how you watched, how they held their guitars, how you watched where the fingers went, how you'd ask, you know, you've always been a little bit of a talker. So you would ask the questions, even when you couldn't pronounce what was going on. And by the time you were three, you were already dragging, somebody had given Aaron a guitar uh, that was too big for him and he didn't really have any interest in it, but you did and you drug it everywhere and you'd sit and watch the Garth Brooks videos watch where he put his hands, imitate how his stage show went and do all that. So, you know, and one of the things you really wanted was your own guitar. And I remember dad found, I don't remember where, a little plastic guitar that actually played, but it had a microphone yeah, that I remember played that. through the guitar. And you would put on shows and, you know, with your little three-year-old voice that couldn't say R's or L's. And... <laughs> Sing sweet twenty in the morning, not as so inside. Dude, what's and so funny is that uh, I remember the guitar you're talking about, and mm -hmm. it was actually that Christmas present that I uh, that I knew that Santa wasn't real, because I remember <laughs> you know I circled that some bitch like eight times in the J.C. Penny catalog, like uh -huh. this is what I want, you know. And then I remember uh -huh. when it came there, and it was because it came with like a this instructional VHS. 
And I was uh-huh. like, Santa doesn't make VHS tapes, you guys. Like, this is exactly <laughs> what was in the catalog. You know, you should have just logged that one as a parent gift. And I probably would have believed for another year. Well, it took, uh, it took a while for you to um, want to be, to be an entertainer part of it. You wanted to do the shows, but you didn't want anybody to, to, to watch you yeah. or listen to you. I was honing my, my craft. I guess, but it was, don't yuck at me. And, and if anybody was looked like they were listening to you, you'd stop playing, wag the finger, don't yuck at me. And then you'd go <laughs> upstairs to your room and shut the door. And I would spy on you through the keyhole and stifle my giggles because you were so into it. And then there was another time where you weren't even that old that I had a feeling something was happening. We were in a Target. You were not quite two and you were in the little cart in the seat and Jeremy by this time had been had taken was taken he used to take you everywhere I remember and you uh and he was listening he loved Phil Collins at that time and you knew all the songs and all the words you you were like I was you could hear a song once or twice and have it memorized and or sometimes you'd make up your own words, but for the most part, you had it memorized. And you were in this grocery cart, and Phil Collins is on the speaker in Target, and you're doing the whole production. You know, son of mine, with your fist <laughs> <laughs> up in the air and fake drum solos and just craziness. And I'm, and it was hilarious, but you know, you, you can just. You never know what really what your kids are going to turn out, but you always tell kids or people when they have new babies, take notes because pieces of that personality are there if you just take notes. And later on, you realize, yeah, all the evidence was there, you know, to see who they're going to be. And all your whole childhood, you would drift back. And I remember, you know, by the time you were in middle school, you were starting to entertain the thought of entertaining, but you had a hard time putting singing together with playing at the same time. Oh my God, it was a nightmare. And I remember, uh, you know, at that time, that was when I was first really getting into punk rock. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning bar chords and, uh, you know, so I could play these, these, you know, a lot of the bands from Side One Dummy. I could play a bunch of their tunes and I remember my goal initially was like, fuck, man, if I could just sing and play at the same time, I remember like almost pleading with God of like, dude, you don't have to make me super talented. Like, just make this thing click for me so I can sing and play guitar at the, at the same fucking time. You know, and a I a lot like, of tears, a lot of tears, dude, a lot so of times that you'd be playing in the middle of the night when you weren't supposed to be. And I'd come in the room and you'd be mad because you're up. But at the same time, sad for you because you were having such a hard time and I remember many times stroking your back and telling you just to keep practicing that it'll click at some point it'll click and you'd get well, so remember, you've got to quit saying that to me well I remember playing um you know what's just so funny because I've you know I'm a serial monogamist I've never really been uh been a ladies man you know I've always had a you know I've always you know been in a relationship or not been in one and but for some reason, I remember, you know, in middle school, you're like, it's when everyone starts dating. And um, you were with Kevin at the time. And, mm-hmm. and he was letting me play this uh, nylon string acoustic that he had. And I remember, you know, I, had, I was getting heat from all my friends and from dad for quitting football. 
And um, you should have told him why you quit football. Just tell him I threatened your life. Yeah, I just, you know, I was getting into drugs and shit. And, you know, I just knew that I wanted to paint and play music and shit. But I remember Kevin came in. I don't remember what song I was playing, but I remember I was just starting to be able to like change from chord to chord. And he goes, man, you're sounding good. And I was like, thanks. I, I don't feel like I sound good. And he goes, well, man, you're going to get a hell of a lot more chicks playing guitar than you will playing football. There's lots of people that play football. <laughs> There's not a lot of dudes that can play the guitar. And uh, there was something about that where I was like, oh, man, yeah, he's fucking right. You know, this is like my ticket to separate myself from the herd. And, um, you know, the yeah. one thing, the story that I always tell about summer that's really special is we were together for shit three four months before i ever played for her. i never even talked about music with her you know i didn't i didn't say a word about it you know and honestly she was the one that really was that really pushed me to to try to do something with it but um you know when you're talking about me not wanting to play in front of people you remember when i was like i would have been like a freshman in high school and there was the open mic at java joe's mm-hmm well, I had made that little fucking demo CD at DMAC because Brock worked at the radio station. Mm -hmm. um, still have it. Yeah, some girl came up to me at a show in Denver and she used to work there as well. And she had it on her computer and she gave me a burned copy of it. Um, I've got but, a bunch of copies somewhere. But I was selling them, you know, uh, I was selling them at lunch and shit like that. And it, and it was the first, you know, I remember something clicking in my head like, yo, fuck dude i could just do this i could just keep writing songs making these recordings and then pumping them out and i was charging five bucks you know and i probably sold 20 or 30 of them uh in one day and then uh someone mentioned that that open mic at java joe so i was like all right bet let's do it and um you know i remember we got down there and fucking you know there was like 200 kids there from my school and I had always said, like, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And I was freaking the fuck out, man. Like, <laughs> I remember going in that bathroom and my fucking hands and ass and armpits were just sweating. And I was shaking, you know, I was like, I'm not, even, my hands are shaking so hard. I'm not even gonna be able to play the guitar. And, uh, you know, I remember going through, I you know, played the first song with my eyes closed and then I stopped playing and everyone went ape shit. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, okay. So you like that, okay, great, uh, here's another one. Um, and then they banned me from, from playing there because I cursed and you know, they, I, I think they probably just didn't want their coffee shop to turn into a, um, you know, to a high school party every friday but i also remember they one of the nights there was like a phoebe uh like a phoebe from friends type gal that was like real bad and all the high school kids were like boo let fucking andrew play this is bullshit you know like <laughs> and uh and yeah we were banned from there um but yeah it was just weird you know i got really caught up in um in, you know in partying and uh you know, I, I just, I love to party. And uh, so music was always just kind of secondary to the party. This is something that I could do at the party. Um, here's a question I've never asked you. How much shit did you know that I was up to when I was in high school? 
probably not enough. Again, there's, you know, when you're, when you're doing what we're doing, you're sometimes you, you don't always know what's going on. If you suspect you're busy, you try not to think about kids are going to do what they're going to do. And you know that you just try to, your, your whole goal with kids is just to keep them alive most mm -hmm. of the time. And, you know, we'd been through so much with Aaron already, and it was disappointing to know that you might be up to the same stuff, but you know, your grades were okay and things. So it's sometimes you just have to, you sometimes you just have to kind of let it go. And yeah, if I had it to do over again, you probably would have had a lot tighter rein on you. But again, I had to feed you and I'd keep you alive. So I'd work. So sometimes you just have to trust your kids are going to do what they're supposed to do. Obviously, sometimes they don't do what they're supposed to do. No. But, yeah, no, not at all. Well, you know, I always, you know, I, I feel like the, my biggest, when was, like, when it was time to intervene and make you stop, I did that. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. And I, you know, um, and we'll get to that story. Um, but, you know, what was a really hard time for me was, you know, when I didn't have to stay with dad anymore, that was huge because I got a, I wasn't under this constant threat of violence and judgment and belittling. And I, I was able to kind of figure out who I was, you know, like when you were in Florida and I was staying with Bobby and even when you got back from Florida and it was just you and me and Chaz, I kind of had this, like, I was kind of left alone to do what I wanted to do. And you were really in favor of me being an artist, which was, you know, uh, new, you know, dad wasn't, he thought it was stupid. And, you know, when he would drink, he'd be like, if he had a buddy over, he'd be like, Hey man, play him a song. Um, but he thought it was, he thought it was dumb. You know, he thought it was stupid that I quit playing sports. And so there was that era there when I was like 15, 16, and I was spending a lot of time with Mr. Weiss, you know, and then the, you know, the famous story when he flipped out on me for stealing art supplies and was like, you're a real fucking artist, man. You know, I think you should say, fuck this whole thing. You clearly had, don't have any respect for any sort of institution or standard form of education. I think you should go out into the world. I think that's how you're going to learn. Um, I don't think any teacher in this building has anything for you. And when he said that, I was like, he's a teacher. He said it not me. I'm taking his advice. Peace. I'm out, you know, and, you know, tooling around Des Moines, we just weren't doing anything, you know, we were just fucking partying. And, uh, you know, I wore out my welcome where I was staying. Cause you were like, okay, dude, well, if you're not in school and you don't want to get a real job, can't you, live gotta, here. you can't live here, which is totally fair because I would do the same with, with, with Colden. You were eight, over 18 by then too. Yeah. So I, you know, so I moved to Chicago and I remember I talked to Jay on a Tuesday and you took me to the train station on a Thursday and, and off I went. Um, but it's just, uh, it, it's, it's wild. You know, I wouldn't change uh, any of it because it obviously, you know, made me who I am and the, I, I'm very freaked out by the butterfly effect of, um, you know, if I were to go back and alter anything, I wouldn't be who I am now. And that scares the shit out of me because I'm, I'm rather fond of the, the man I've become. Um, but, you know, when I was in Chicago, yeah, man, everything was just, I hung out with, I lived with Jay, you know, and then I lived with my girlfriend who we 
they were all college kids. So we had a fucking party there five days a week. And all my friends were 10 years older than me because they were all Jay's friends. And, you know, we skateboarded and partied and listened to punk mm-hmm. rock. And that was what we did, you know. And then when my friends would come in town, we'd go to jam band shows. And it's, but what's really crazy when I think about all of that, music was the constant. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always playing, I was always writing. And I was always listening. Like it was always the most important part of everything. Everything had a soundtrack. When we got to the bar, I, you know, people would each kick me five bucks to be like, go set the jukebox up for two hours. You know, at work, it was always, we were always listening to, you know, oh, yo, check out this hip hop. This cat's from the West Side. You haven't heard him. And, um, you know, music was always the fucking thing. That was always it. And it's funny because I, you know, for a while there, I just fucking hated country music. And I always remember when I was young, you were like, you'll come back to it. You say that now, but you'll come back to it. Are um, your soul. Yeah. And it's so funny because I, you know, that's pretty much 80% of what I'm listening to currently. <laughs> you Don't know? you hate it when moms are right? Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, well, it's a, such an interesting thing because that was something where I was like, no, you know, I'm music is my identity. So it has to be counterculture. It has to be fringy. It has to kind of be out there, you know, for me to fuck with it. And, you know, it wasn't until I got older that I realized, you know, like, like a guy like Garth Brooks of how just insane that fucking story is mm-hmm. of just like, you know, country was a novelty music. It was for cowboys. Mm-hmm. You know, it was for people, for rural people. And, you know, this fucking guy shows up and sells more records than anybody ever. And he does it mm-hmm. in a fucking five-year span. Who, so what was some of the shit that, that Grandpa used to listen to? What was the shit that you grew up listening to? Well, you know, we grew up with, obviously, a lot of Buck Owens, a lot of Roy Clark. Um, you know, I was listening and learned the first song songs I learned to sing were people that were artists before I was even born, like, you know, Patsy Cline and, you know, Loretta was big when I was a little tiny girl and, you know, it was all about Loretta and the offshoots of that, Peggy Lee and Connie Smith and, you know, all of these Donna Fargo and my dad had a real fondness for Donna Fargo. So of course, you know, I learned all of her songs to, to keep to make him happy you know and you know that harmonizing that was something I did then too and that's what how it all started I was there was a guy that lived on the ranch bordering ours that played the accordion and he'd play the accordion and he'd sing stuff and I was little tiny and just automatically it was just something I just had in me was that harmonizing ability and I'd start harmonizing so that became the thing and I was perfectly happy to be the person in the background and and uh doing that it just it's just it was it's fun it's still fun i step yeah. still the part that i like and to to make that to make that work but yeah it was a lot of that but my dad had a little rock bone in him too he was a big credence big credence fan love yeah grandpa he liked dwight yokum when he came along he didn't really take to a lot of the new stuff he kept with his old stuff marty robbins was a big favorite baron young you know, we liked instrumental stuff, the ventures. We used to listen to the ventures all the time. Um, you know, and it's 
but that was it. You know, we, I remember the first concert I ever went to when I was a little girl, I was probably seven or eight was Roy Clark. And I saw on the news the other day that they tore the grandstands down in Billings at the Metro. Well, before yep. there was a Metro, there was only the grandstands and they would do the rodeo in the daytime for the fair. And the fair was always behind you, like mm -hmm. where it is now, but where the Metro stands was fairgrounds. And then they would roll the stage out onto the dirt where the rodeo happens and the fair, you know, where the livestock show is. And that's where they did the show. So to see those grandstands have been torn down, it feels like the last little semblance of my musical childhood has been destroyed. Well, it you know what's weird bad. about sh shit that you listen to when you're young too is like Dwight Yoakam is a perfect example. Um, you know, always remember the name, always remember the, the story of when he was playing in Livingston, he showed up late because he was smoking weed with Peter Fonda, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny because I put him on, uh, my buddy Wombles was out here and he came on a playlist and he's like, oh, I fucking love Dwight Yoakam. Well, we had an hour drive and I put him on and holy shit, dude, I knew like seven or eight of his songs, like every yeah. word and was like, where the fuck is all of this stored? Like, you know, like, how is this in my brain? I don't even remember this shit. But then I have these memories of um, his music video for uh, You've Got Your Way. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because you're talking about always being like, yeah, I always enjoy being in the background or like, you know, Stefan being like, you know, remember seeing Jimmy Page and being like, I want to be that fucking guy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember that Garth TV special that we recorded on VHS and watching it. And for me, there was no fucking question. I was like, I want to be that guy. I don't give a shit what anyone's doing. I want to be him. I want to be the dude singing songs that everybody's singing. You know, I just, and Dwight Yoakam too, you know, I remember in that video of just being like, he's the fucking man, sign me up. Yep. It's, uh, you know, when you were, oh, I don't know, 15 or 16, I guess, when you were first starting to do the coffee shop thing scene, I remember having conversations with you about taking it more seriously you know, you had to get there yourself, but that was one of the things is I always kept trying to plant that seed that so you wouldn't forget about it. And I remember when you, you know, there's how many times there's been when you've thought about walking away from or quitting. I'm like, just wait till you're 30. If you, mm -hmm. if you, know, you know, no, don't quit yet. Just, you're not even 30 yet, you know, mm -hmm. and just telling you, just stay with it. And I'm glad that you did because you have a lot to offer, but it would be a sad thing for the rest of the world if you had given up. It would have been sad for me as well because I knew that you could do it. I knew you could do it. Your work ethic is strong. You know, once you, you had all the tools, that's what I always tell local students, you have the tools, you have the tools. We just have to teach you how to use them. And that was the truth. You had the tools, you just had to figure out how to use them. Yeah, well, it's- And use them appropriately and use them in the right order and and how not to break them. Yeah, well, it's a weird, uh, you know, the whole thing's rather weird for me if I, if I really sit with it. Because um, I didn't, um, you, know, I'm, uh, you know, when I look back at being 15, 16, I always knew I would be where I was at right now. And I used to always, you know, I didn't know about the law of attraction or all this like new age shit. But 
I, you know, I always used to say, well, if I tell everybody that this is what I'm going to do, then it, 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 it's some way, shape or form, it's going to hold me accountable. So yeah. if I tell everyone I went to high school with that, no, dude, I'm going to be a professional musician. I'm going to live in a small mountain town. I'm going to have a family, but I'm also going to be a fucking badass touring musician. And, you know, I'm going to do both. I'm going to have a dope family. I'm going to live in the mountains and, you know, I'm going to do all the things I'm talking about doing. I'm going to paint and, you know, it really fucks me up some days when I'm like, you know, and today was one of those days, like I said, when we announced the signing, I, it's not fucking news to me. I've been litigating this deal for, you know, long time, a long mm -hmm. ass time. So um, when we announced it today, you know, a lot of people that I was friends with in high school hit me up and were like, dude, fuck yeah, man. You know, like, good for you. Like, and, and when we played in Des Moines last time, you know, we almost sold out Woolies. We did 520 people or something like that. And we put on a hell of a show. That was probably my favorite. Uh, musically, that was my favorite show of the tour. We were just really fucking on. But after the show, you know, Bobby and all the, the old boys were there. And Bobby goes, hey, man, can I tell you something? I used to think you were so full of shit. You know, <laughs> he was like... He's like, man, I just remember so many times smoking weed and all of us hanging out and you going off on these tangents of I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to fucking sign a label deal and I'm going to be in a magazine. And I would, you know, I would always look over at Contino or one of the boys and just be like this motherfucker, man, you know, and he's like, thank you so much for proving me wrong. You know, like I'm, so, you know, he was just so stoked. And for me, I'm starting to get a lot of all of the the pleasure that I used to think were going to come from, I told you so's. Um, I don't have that. Maybe with a few teachers, if I bumped into them, Bruce hooky. Um, when we played at, um, uh, when we played the Simon Estes with Franti, I sent tickets to Johnston high school. I don't know if he got them. Um, Doesn't matter. Yeah. But it would have been cool if he did. Cause he was a douche. But, um, mm -hmm. but I say all that to say, I take great pride in my friends being proud of me. And, you know, a lot of them kind of live vicariously through me of just like, man, that's my guy. That's my fucking homie. And he's out there doing it, you know, and he's, you know, he isn't working somewhere. He doesn't want to work. And I take great pride in getting to play music for people because, you know, I say this all the time on the podcast, but like most people aren't in love with their job, but their job mm -hmm. affords them, the ability to take care of their kids, pay their rent. And every once in a while, they see the show is coming to town and they go, okay, I'm going to buy tickets for that. And I'm fucking going. Yep. And it's really cool to get a B. That's 90% of it. Yeah. Yeah, really. And it's really special to get a B the thing that those people take their hard earned money and their time. You know, when mm -hmm. you have a bunch of kids, you don't get a lot of nights out. Mm -hmm. So when people and it's good that you recognize you keep saying it over and over and it's important that you you know that people understand this is your job mm -hmm. and you take your job seriously Very it's not all fun and games that fun and games is that two or three hours a week that you get to be on a stage the rest of those 80 90 hours a week that they don't see are conference calls and writing driving and while i'm having driving and yeah. all of that that <laughs> To, to, to make them happy for that hour, a little over an hour plus set that you're going to play three or four times a week, the rest of that, they don't see. They think that's all you do. That's what you do. And the, they don't have a clue 
how many hours and hours and hours go into preparation for your job. And that's the, that's the thing that it's hard, I think, for people, anybody that's not in it and sees it, doesn't understand what a, it's a hard life. It's a very hard life. It's a very hard job. You're sacrificing, you know, you talk about people sacrificing their pace, you know, their pay and their time, but you're sacrificing a given because, you know, if you don't perform, you're not going to get paid. So you're sacrificing that. You're sacrificing time with your family, a real life. You don't get weekends off. You don't yeah. get, you know what I mean? Your summers are, you know, you're not on vacation during summer. You're working. Yeah. I'm so, on a fucking airplane. Yeah. It's a balance. It's about, everything's about is a balance. And this is, this is how you make your living. And it's, it's good that you understand and I remember talking to you about this when you were, I remember you used to romanticize it when you were a kid and I would shake my head and say, you know, this is, it's to get where you want to be is hard work. You're going to have to work hard, way harder than you're working now. You're going to have to work hard, hard. And I remember when you first came back from Nepal and you were still on the fence about doing it. And I kept telling you, it's it, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. There's a reason there's only a few people that get recognized for this because it's hard. Yeah. And I, and for me, you know, I really took the approach of, you know, where most people would quit. I just won't quit when that comes up and then I'll probably just do all right because, you know, the reason people don't make it is because they quit. And if I just That's, make the decision that true. I'm not, not going to fucking quit, then, then I'll be good. You know, another huge thing for me is, um, you know, I found, you know, through therapy in the last, you know, 18 months, and and COVID has been a huge blessing for me of, of just granting me balance. But I really, um, when we were like on the the Franti Trevor train, that whole kind of two year spin mm -hmm. cycle, I really spent a lot of time going, well, this is what I said I wanted. And here it is. And you know, there's a reason why Jackson Brown wrote the, wrote the songs he did. There's a reason why Seeger wrote the songs he did. Uh, Zeppelin, uh, you know, it, you name a fucking prolific, amazing writer. And they have 10 or 12 songs in their catalog about being like, I said goodbye to a normal life a mm -hmm. long fucking time ago. Mm -hmm. And this is my life now. And you start weighing this thing of is the magic on stage worth not having a worth not having a normal life and for me it was always like that's not even a fucking question dude like mm -hmm. i die for this shit you know mm -hmm. and and support is big you're very lucky that you have the family that you have because a lot of marriages break up over this a lot of musicians end up alone or married multiple times because people that jump into this kind of a situation they don't realize what they're jumping into now you know, summer is, it's having a huge a support system is huge. And she is a great support system for you. I don't know where you'd be without her truly, but um, it's hard. It's hard for her too. And it's, you know, and, and that's something that people have to recognize that the, the families, you know, they suffer to that degree because their, their spouse has gone a lot. Kids suffer because their dad has gone a lot. You know, and, the other you know, thing that, that it gets me all the time is, um, you know, uh, you know, I get a bop around the country a lot. So I get to see, 
people on a regular basis, but the part of that that people don't think about is I'm also always saying goodbye to people, you know, mm-hmm. and um, really uh, in the past two years is if we've, as we've got more successful and start selling our own tickets, um, you know, you get to spend a day with someone you haven't seen in a while. It happens every time I see you where I go, oh, well, shit, you know, when I get in my workflow and my life flow, I don't know that I miss my mom, but then I spend two days with her and I'm like, well, fuck, man, I don't, you know, I don't want to say bye to you. And, um, <laughs> And I have to do it with friends, you know, when we're on tour, I do it every day. You know, mm-hmm. I get I get two hours and I go out to eat with someone I haven't seen in a year. And I'm so excited to see him and we have this amazing check-in. And then I go, you know, man, I have no idea when I'm going to see you again. Uh, you know, yeah. in the next calendar year, we'll be back in your city, no doubt. But uh, I don't know when that will be. And, you know, there's also a chance that the schedule is, is not going to allow. You can come backstage and say what's up right before we go on. But, you know, it's, it's this, uh, you're always saying goodbye to people. Um, you know, and I had this conversation with Carl in the van one time. He goes, yeah, dude, but you also say hello to him. You know, most people have friends all over the country. And it's like, well, I can't take, you know, I can't go visit 40 fucking cities uh, every year to see all these people that I'm friends with you know, uh, where I get to, you know, I get to, I get to mm-hmm. see people, which is really cool. And it's funny, Summer will give me shit all the time. Cause I always say, yeah, one of my best friends, she's like, one of your best friends. I've never met this motherfucker. I'm like, yeah, but I've known him 20 years and I see him once or twice a year, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just a different life for sure. It's a different, it's a different life. No yeah, doubt about but, uh, it, but it is the life that you wanted. It's the life you chose. And so it bent, it gives you the benefit, you know, you're, you're right. Most people don't get to, to do a job they love. They're existing. Yeah. So you have to remember that blessing all the time that, you know. I want to share something with you that came up on a podcast that I recorded with Brad from Dispatch. Um, You know, I didn't know grandpa well, because every time I saw him, as a, you know, a somewhat cognizant adult, I have, you know, a lot of memories of him when I was little of, of Christmas and, and wrestling around with him. And, um, you know, one thing that I always very much remember was dad was a very different person when Sonny was around, mm-hmm. you know, he was, which is so funny because dad was probably three times the size of, of your dad. Mm-hmm. You know? But boy, did he fucking tighten up when, when, when Sonny was around. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, you know, I remember when you and I went up to round up, it was soon after, uh, grandma went into the nursing home and I had just gotten back from Nepal. Um, it was, I think Emily had graduated. That's what it was. And we went over there and you were doing something in the kitchen, I, I cleaning or cooking or something. And, you know, and he said, you, you really went to the other side of the world for what? I said, to see the mountains. And he goes, huh, <laughs> that's, that's all right. Was it cool? I said, it was the coolest thing I've ever done. And he said, keep doing cool shit, man. Cause when you're sitting where I'm sitting in this chair, that's all you'll think about is the cool shit you did. And I didn't really do a lot of cool shit. I was just worked. And, uh, and I was telling Brad this and I kept saying, you know, I've come up with this whole philosophy and I knew this would happen. And I was just talking to Summer about it the other night. I knew that after grandpa passed, I would become completely infatuated with him. It's the mm-hmm. stupidest thing. I knew I would become completely infatuated with him after he was gone. 
And um, I was telling Brad from Dispatch that I just keep coming back to this idea of the chair. And I've built this whole philosophy around it of, you know, what, when I'm left in that chair, my body's utterly destroyed from jujitsu and I'm not touring anymore and my kids are all grown and fucking gone. What will I think of in my chair? And uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty safe place to live from is, is thinking about what you're going to think of when you're in your chair. Because eventually mm -hmm. you're going to sit down and you're not going to get up much. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that was a really crazy thing. And that was uh, just watching that whole phase of him, you know, that he was supposed to die like 15 fucking times. Um, but, you know, every time you'd see him, because when I was young, I remember him still seeing him riding horses and fucking branding and just doing all of this shit that he was way too old to be doing. And then, you know, he sat down in that chair and that was the only place that I saw him for, for years was sitting in that chair. Mm -hmm. um, but I also remember every time we went, he just had uh, uh, replays of the Grand Ole Opry on at all times. Hee-haw. Or hee-haw, that's what it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do it now too. Well, it's funny, I was telling you, you know, I'm a, my brain is a steel trap. Um, and it's on even when I don't know it's on. And um, I was telling you, I was watching that Ken Burns country music documentary. The best. Man, I'll be damned if I did not know everybody that he was talking about. Like, you know, he'd give his little intro. It was like, and in 1924, a, a woman from West Virginia who was the daughter of a coal miner, I was like, Loretta Lynn, you know, like I didn't, or whatever. But, you know, like I knew every single fucking person. Like, I knew everyone. And, um, it's wild how that how that information gets in there, mm -hmm. um, and it stays. And and I know you know I know what I'm looking for when I go back, you know when I'm like oh what do I want to listen to? You know I'll be like oh what's some shit? What's some old shit? You know I'm a huge, you know Waylon is is far and away my favorite country artist. Uh, I just can't get enough of him. Uh, the way he writes a song and there's a there's a toughness to Waylon that's just, it's different. You know, Willie had this kind of freewheeling, traveling, you know, light-footed, light-hearted, uh, chugging along music. And Johnny Cash, same thing, a little tougher, but just kind of traveling tunes, driving tunes. But there's something about Waylon, man. He just, he'd fucking bare knuckle box you in the parking lot, no problem. Mm -hmm. I really, I really like that about him. It remind, it actually reminds me a lot of Grandpa. Of just his like, I was really moved at his funeral. Um, you know, everybody just had a story of how tough he was. You know, mm -hmm. and 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 like, one of the guys had a story that uh, he was changing the shoes on the horse. They were moving cows, changing the shoes on the horse. Horse kicks him in the fucking chest. He pops back up, doesn't say a word to anyone. They're all like, you okay? Are you okay? I'm fine. And then move those cows. And then right when he got home, did miles of fencing. And then they later find out that he had a cracked sternum and two broken ribs. And I don't know how many people listening have ever uh, fenced. It's a real pain in the ass. You have this very, you know, back then, I would imagine it hasn't changed too much, but it's a very crude Mm -hmm. the giant digger that had to go, yeah. go so you, they still use that so but if you think the of thing like that you jacked it with 
had to come clear across your body and back across uh -huh. the beam to, yeah. to tie so, barbed wire. So you have the, you, you dig your hole and then you have a, uh, your post hole digger is this big heavy metal tube with two handles on it that you have to lift up and slam down. So you imagine doing that with a broken rib. And then you have a thing that has two levers and each lever is about the length of a forearm with your palm open. Mm -hmm. And you gotta, they're hard as hell to jerk back and forth and that's what you're tightening the barbed wire with. So I just kept thinking of this little five foot nothing, 130 pound man with a broken sternum and broken ribs. He was probably buck 50 in those days. Yeah, yeah, the picture I have of him, he looks pretty cut up. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's wild how, uh, how legacy works, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've recently, uh, you know, when I first started making a little money, I was buying dumb shit, you know, sneakers and just shit that I always wanted. And now I will only spend money on something if it's like a legacy piece, you know, that's the consideration. Like when I bought that guitar, I was like, well, someone gives this to my great grandchild, it'll, you know, it'll probably be worth a hundred thousand dollars at that point or whatever. Or mm -hmm. this hat that I just bought was like, okay, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to get a badass custom hat. And this hat will be, you know, 300 years old before it goes away, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and I think of that, you know, I, I, cause I have his hat sitting over there and I'm like, dude, this thing will exist as long as it's passed on, you mm -hmm. know? We all took one of my dad's custom hats. So I've got I've got one here, the, the felt hats. We all took one. They've got his name in them. So yeah, pass yeah, them down and they are, yeah. you're right, they're legacy pieces. Yeah, and it's cool shit because you, uh, yeah, there's something about a hat. You know, I've always really loved them, but there's something about a hat, especially when someone does hard work in it or travels with it. You know, there's some juju or something that gets up in them. Um, you know, so yeah, I think of that often with my hats of, of what a big deal it will be to gift that to someone when I'm in my chair. Say, hey man, this has dust on it from all of the continents. Well, you know? the smell sticks to them because whenever I open, even though it's in plastic and in a box, when I open this closet that's in there and it's in there, the whole closet still smells like him. And he's, yep. he's been gone two years in March. So he's hanging yeah, that's, around. That's still cool shit. <laughs> well, we have um, the single is out tomorrow morning. Awesome. And well, actually, I guess midnight your time. Um, so yeah, we have, um, it is a cover of Randy Travis's Forever and Ever Amen. And mm -hmm. the story behind uh, me deciding to cover this song was Last fall, we did a tour of the Southeast, and I knew that you were going to be at a few of those shows. So mm -hmm. in preparation for that tour, I said, okay, what's a song I could sing that would just really fucking make my mom really happy? <laughs> um, and I tooled around with some Garth Brooks tunes and was like, nah, we got to go older. And, uh, you know, I listened to that song and I said, man, this, this is, it's such a well-written song but I just thought it was played in the wrong rhythm. You know, it wasn't choppy enough for me. And uh, so I fucked around and right away when I started, I just looked up the chords and, and I started playing it and out came that version. Played it for the boys and they were kind of like a Randy Travis song, okay. And the first fucking night of tour, we played it and everybody sang along and I was like, told y'all motherfuckers. Okay. And um, 
the guy that wrote that song was on, uh, what was he on? He was on the Opry. They have COVID Opry now. And now there's a few people in the audience, but they were doing COVID Opry to empty Ryman Auditorium or empty Opry stage, empty, except for the performers and the guy that wrote that song um, did his cow. He, he's written over 3,000 songs for other people. He's not much of a singer, but boy, can he write a song. So worth looking up the history of some of the other songs he's written. I think you'll be surprised. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You know, I think all of the time of, um, you know, like Stapleton really got his, you know, he made a lot of money before his right, him, people. him playing, mm -hmm. which is so funny because I think in what fucking planet do you hear Chris Stapleton's demo of a song and be like, oh yeah, this would be great for somebody else to sing. Like, how do you fucking hear that guy's voice and think anybody should sing anything that he wrote <laughs> you know like yeah it blows me a away a lot of the artists especially in nashville i'm sure a lot of places but especially in nashville most of your major artists start as a writer as the really good ones that are around for a long time they start as writers for other people i mean well it was the more successful but the phil vassars and people like that that they wrote tons of songs for made good living josh thompson he's my favorite favorite Nashville artist of all time but his where he makes his money is writing for other people and it's to the point where I'm so tuned into his to who, who he is and how he writes that I can hear somebody sing a song on the radio and go that kind of sounds like Josh Thompson and I'll quick look it up and sure enough if he's not the writer he's a co-writer he just has a certain style and but somebody picks up a song of his it's going to be a hit it's just how yeah. it is that's what was really why, you know, it was funny. Summer didn't really know the going ons of um, how, uh, you know, how most, how country music really went. Mm -hmm. And dude, the heartbreak she experienced, the, the heartbreak that she experienced when we were watching that Garth Brooks documentary and she found out he didn't write all those songs. <laughs> she was pissed. She was like, well, what the very fuck? Few. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not much of a writer. He writes more now than he did then. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I personally. Uh, Some people don't have both gifts. Yeah, and I just, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, unless, unless it was all, uh, unless it was a cover like this, I just could not in my, uh, um, I just could not fucking imagine someone writing a song and being like, hey, bro, can I have that? You know, I'd be like, am I- Someone's gonna walk up to you someday and say that. Yeah, totally, you can have it. Let's make, let's figure it out. Um, yeah, someone is going to want one of your songs. At some point, you're gonna write something that maybe you're not fond of that someone else is gonna love. I guarantee that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm into it. You know, I, it's funny, I, Bob Dylan always said, you know, he said when I wrote, Oh, along the Roch Tower. I didn't know that I wrote that song for Jimi Hendrix, but uh, you know, I clearly did. Well, think about what a big hit Garth Brooks had with a Bob Dylan song. I mean. Or if, how many fucking people have made millions off a wagon wheel, holy shit. <laughs> exactly. You know, crazy. That, that like built uh, Old Crow Medicine Show, their cover of that was like the shit. And then Darius Rucker was like, oh yeah, I'll cover that shit too, why not? Bob Dylan's yep. swimming in money and smoking weed. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Um, I have some standard questions that I ask anyone that's a musician or music fan on the podcast, and then I'll let you go so I can go wash the jujitsu off of me. Let's see here. Um, um, what was the first record that made you cry? Crazy. Patsy Klein. Good one. Um, what was the first, what was the, the first song or, that you heard where you went, oh, I want to sing, I want to be a singer? Probably Walking After Midnight, Patsy Cline. And I think the reason was, is when I was little, uh, somebody, well, Marilyn Grimesman, I don't know, remember how old she was. I remember we all lived in our, she gave us a record player and a bunch of records as she was too old for them or something. And for whatever reason, that song just clicked for me and I learned it really fast. I can still sing it to this day. I, if I get asked to sing something at the drop of a dime, that's usually what I pull out is, is that, or something Reba. Um, that was something else I used to do. If, if, if there was a songwriter that wanted to pitch a song to a Reba or a pitch it to Patty Loveless or pitch it to um, Martina, I would get that call to come to Nashville or come somewhere, do the demo so they could pitch it to that particular artist because of the, the range. Um, it's hilarious to me that that's, uh, I used to make, some, I used to get paid some, that kept you guys in shoes. <laughs> when you were little, that's, you know, I couldn't count on child support either. So I had, that was a lot of the reason I was doing these extra things because that's what, a lot of times those dem those the money I made from demos kept you guys in clothes and shoes. So <laughs> but that was just part of it. And that's why I'm drawn to those type of females. But Patsy Klein and Walking After Midnight was was a big song. You needed a big voice for it and I could do it. So it's always been a stock one for me and probably always will be till I'm not here anymore. What? Um, I always ask people what their favorite hip hop record is, but that's probably uh Oh I I yeah. Shoot, what's your favorite hip hop record, Mom? Well, you know, it's all your fault, but I've kind of started liking common. Because he's the but fucking he, man. He is the man. And I really do I mean, a lot of people could trash Eminem, but I like Eminem. I think he has a lot to say. I think he broke, you know, the color barrier coming from the other direction because, of course, he grew up there. But he's got, a, he's always had something to say, and he's always had a really great way of saying it. And I just think, I think Eminem's the bomb. So. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, it's weird. It's a touchy subject in hip hop culture. Of you know, how do you guys feel? Uh, about a white boy being the greatest selling rap artist of all time. And yeah. it's funny because uh, the response from most uh, elite MCs is, he's the fucking best. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> like everyone will. And uh, there's this great YouTube compilation of, uh, of this radio host asking um, MCs like, you know, who's a rapper that you would not want beef with? Like, did you would not want to make a diss track on you? And it's like the most gangster dudes ever, like the game, 50 Cent, you know, like all these dudes being like, I don't want it with M, man. Like that dude's cool in my book, like no diss tracks, we're good, please don't come at me, <laughs> you know, like, and there's something to be said about that that I think is really cool. Um, 
what's your free what are your three favorite records right now or artists what right now you're really into right now um i don't care what tyler childress sings he can sing anything as far as i'm concerned and i'm gonna listen to it same love tyler childress there's a new kid out that i really like his name is parker mccullum he finally put out a little ep and he's young real young and he doesn't look like a traditional country artist at all but he's getting some spins on he looks like a frat boy on satellite he does but he he's he's got an interesting way of spinning a story too um and a song that sounds like uh you gotta listen to like a cowboy all right i'm seeing that here yeah you gotta listen to that one and um what does that say about me it's it's not you're gonna you think when you see a title like that you think that you know what you're gonna get and then when you start listening to the lyrics you're like what <laughs> what it's completely the opposite of what you expect is going to be coming out in the title of a song it's not yeah he's just different i really really like him and then um the more eric church does the better he gets and he finally got his due that's another guy you know he does not care if he gets played on the radio or not he's lucky enough that he does but he does not care he's another one who has bucked the system and made his own records <coughs> he says what he wants he does what he wants and and it's worked out for him and but if he got quit getting played on radio tomorrow he would not care because he's just going to do what he's going to do and he's said that from the beginning he got this no a lot of people don't know this story about eric when he first started out he was opening up for rascal flats and they kicked him off the tour because he was too loud he got the crowd too riled up they kicked him off the tour and replaced him with taylor swift Dude, what's so wild about that? You hear that, you hear that happening in, uh, in stand-up comedy all the time? That somebody's uh -huh. too funny? Because I guess that's a really shitty thing in comedy is you're like, you don't want to follow somebody that's funnier than you. It's like, so some really? people, some people purposely take out shitty comics on the road. Mm -hmm. But yeah, music, it's never really that way. Like you got to be a pretty insecure motherfucker, especially if you got a bunch of top 10 hits to get rid of an opener because they're doing too good of a job. Like, you know. He is loud. He, he doesn't make any bones about it. And anytime I've ever seen him, the show gets better, but it's the music that gets better. And he is that guy. He is that guy that reaches back and pulls guys with him. Like Brothers Osborne exist because yeah, those guys rock. Them on the road and they are the bomb too. But he drug them along. And I see him doing that with artists all the time. And you watch. He and now the Brothers Osborne are always with Chris Stapleton. All those guys are friends. And that's a show you want to see. Brothers Osborne and Chris Stapleton together. You cannot do better than that. Yeah, well, word, word is that, uh, um, well, not word is, it's fact, assuming that shows go back to normal in 2021. But Marcus King is going on tour with, with Stapleton. And man, that's a... I, can, I could totally see that. Speaking of Marcus King, you've got to listen to the song that he does about the lock, the lockdown with Grace Potter. I've heard that, yeah. That's a great song, and they really sound really good together. And I'm, you know, I didn't look up the history of how that was written or how it came to be, 
um, but it's called each other and they spell it with one word each other as one word is the title it's all in lowercase but it's a great song but it's about lockdown yeah Mar marcus is you know, a fucking vibe man it is man it just it's just between the two of them and there's somebody else on there with them too it's three of them you know that damn kid he's only like 25 yeah Outrageous. I remember when, when I remember when the first time I heard ever heard Eric Church, he was about that age, and he's from this area, which just cracks me up because I can only imagine him knocking around the same bars that John's knocking around, doing the same type of thing, you know, singing his thing, and then, you know, and then just decide, well, I'm gonna go to Nashville and see what happens. You know, he writes, he wrote a song about how it all came to be about playing football at App State and getting hurt and thinking that was going to be his life. And then suddenly it was all over because he was hurt and had to do something else. He had to pivot. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, if this uh, if this record takes off like I hope it does, I have, I have every intention of bringing, bringing young Johnny out with me. That would be great. Yeah, I got to get him out of there. But I agree. I hope you're listening to this, John Montgomery. Yeah, dude, get your shit together, man. You're you're one of my favorite songwriters. He is amazing. He, yeah. He's got all the tools, and he knows how to use them. Now he knows how to use them. Now he's just got to get brave enough to use them. Ain't nothing to it but to do it, baby. <laughs> um, all right, mom. Well, I love you. I'm gonna love go home, you, and you can go to bed. And uh, thanks for taking time to chat with me. It was my pleasure. You know, you're my favorite artist of all time. I like culture. I listen to culture all the time. I appreciate it. That you and about 13 other people, according no, to No, that's not true. I think <laughs> a lot of people listen to culture. I, I don't know why they wouldn't. It's just, to me, it's definitely some of your best work. There was some, there's a lot of deepness to those songs and, you know. They'll, they'll get it when they get it. Yep, that's true. Can't force it. All right. I love you, mom. I'll talk to you soon. Love you too, baby. Talk All, right. To you. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week on the podcast, we have Brad Corrigan from the fucking band Dispatch. One of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, dude, Brad and Chad and Pete and the band as it is now had a profound impact on my life. And um, it was really wild. Um, I'm sure you'll catch it, but dude, Brad and I connected in a pretty serious way. Um, like right out the gate, like he's been to the small town that I live in. And yeah, it was like right off the bat, dude, we became best buds. Um, so yeah, that's all I got for you. Go listen to the new single um, and share it with your friends. Um, I love y'all and we'll talk to you next week. Peace.